Welcome to Winning Uglier with Brad Gilbert. What up, Buck? Was nice to be back on the court with you yesterday. You were gone for about a month. I just been hitting on the wall. You inspire your sister, Julie, to come out yesterday to hit a few balls with us. She started playing again after not playing for a long time. She's about a 3-0, so we're both trying to help her a little bit with her game. She likes a little bit of pace. You give her a little no pace. You know, she kind of gets cramped. We're both kind of giving her a little tips, but it's fun trying to help your sister. Yeah, it has been a lot of fun uh, helping Julie get back into it. Uh, Yeah, it's a little tricky for me because I play pretty heavy spin. So, you know, when I hit with her... That that element is a bit is a bit tough, so I got to bring the spin down. You're a little bit better at that because you play play a flatter, and I think it's a bit easier for her to handle. Yeah, your spin quotient a little tougher. I hit it a little lower, a little flatter, makes it a little easier for her. The ball doesn't move on her, um, but it's just nice to, to to hit some balls. And then every time we go to the club, it's packed. I got a call in the morning or the day before. You can't just rock up, and that's been a great thing. A you know, to 2020 is how many people have come back to tennis and are playing a lot more than they've ever played before. It's been a really difficult year, but it's been great for for tennis that to, to see so many people enjoying getting back in the sport. Yeah, it's it's a nice silver lining in an otherwise rough year. You know, however you want to look at it, but you know the fact that there are so many people getting back into playing has been really, really cool to see. And, and people, you know, that didn't play for a long time, uh, and, you know, are getting, and are getting back into it or, or people that have, ne- that have never played before that are just starting, starting up. I think it, it's been a great boost for the sport this year. As we close out 2020, I like the sound of 2021 a lot better. Ever since I was a little kid, I always made like a little piece of paper like a little list of small goals. I think all tennis players should make a little small list. You can make a little note on your iPhone on things that you like to try to, you know, achieve the following year. I always feel like don't make your goals so crazy high. It can just simply be if you play once or twice a week, you know what? I like to increase to play three times a week. Or you know what? I I'm in a good 4-0 league. You know, maybe to play a second 4-0 league. Maybe to play in a 4-5 league. You know what? Maybe if I only play one tournament every three or four months, maybe to add another tournament. Just simple little goals that you can think about that all of a sudden, if you if you look at it, it helps remind you, and you know what? I, I can do that. Or, you know what? My whole goal is to go from a 3-0 to a 3-5 this year. Or I want to, you know, move up on my team. Little Little small goals, small wins, and reminders on a note. It's always a good thing to have little measurable goals. You know, I guess you could call them your your tennis resolutions for for 2021, along with maybe you know some other big picture New Year's resolutions that you might be setting. Yeah, I mean, so many people you you set these you know huge goals. I want to lose this amount of weight. I want to do this. I want to get a better job. I would just always make like you know, little thoughts on my tennis, like, okay, if I'm going on this trip, a five week trip, okay, I want to see if I can win 15 matches or, but I always feel like that if you make the goals too high, I want to go from a 4-0 to 5-0. That's, it's too difficult. And when you make 
you know, sometimes these big goals and you don't hit them or you're nowhere near them, it, it kind of can push you back. So, so that's why sometimes set the goal a little lower. Maybe you fly past it and then you reevaluate and reset. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting debate how lofty of, of goals you should set. I mean, I, I was looking at this thing. I think it was Elon Musk recently who he likes to set these really ambitious goals of maybe it's something that you, you he wouldn't normally think that would be accomplishable, you know, outside of like a 10 year period. But he sets this that same goal for six months out. And he's like, well, I'm probably not going to get there, but I think I'll be a lot farther along uh, than I than I would have otherwise if I had set a goal that was you know a little bit less ambitious. So it's more on the long along the lines of you know setting these ambitious goals but being okay with a, a little bit of failure you know but you're still going to get further. So I don't know. Interesting debate. I think that there's definitely a place for smaller you know more attainable month to month kind of goals that are more easily achievable. And then there's maybe a place for setting, you know, one really big, lofty, ambitious goal. I uh, See, I set the real conservative, easy ones. The one you were just talking about, Musk, kind of in tennis terms, it's kind of like bomb your first serve, bomb your second serve. And if you double fault a few times, maybe you'll, you know, you'll win a lot more by bombing them. So it's, it's interesting, you know, thought process. I just kind of like to grind and you know, it always just gives you something to look forward to. Kind of, I, you know, and, and we'll turn here a little bit on something to look forward to. I've really enjoyed doing these podcasts, you know, with you over the last few months. And one of the things I actually look forward to most, I always want to know what they are, but you don't tell me what they are, is the questions from people. And I, I, I've been really impressed by the questions that we've got and, and they make you think and and a lot of it, you know, really, you know, is something that applies to them and it applies to a lot of us. So it's something that I've really come to enjoy. Yeah. So we wanted to do just mainly a question oriented podcast today, sort of as a, you know, thank you to our listeners, um, you know, throughout the year and really just try to get to a few of them that, that we haven't gotten to yet that we wanted to. So this First one is from KG from New York. She just wants to go by the initials. KG, KG. all right. Uh, that would be your mom, Kim Gilbert. That would also be Kim Gilbert's initials, indeed. Uh, so she says, I'm 56 and a 5-0 singles player, and I love competing. Good put. Especially in singles. All was going well, and I was still improving certain facets of my game when I blew out my left knee. Three months after surgery, I've finally been given the green light to play, starting slowly. Now, I'm lumbering around the court, and frankly, I'll, I'll probably never be as fast as I was. My question is, how can I keep a positive attitude even though I'll most likely be a lesser player on the court because of the injury? How can I still enjoy the game and the competition even though I'm a ghost of my former self? This is a great question, thought. All sorts of things are going through my head. About half your age. So what, maybe when I was 27, I went through the first and only surgery that I had uh, on my ankle. And KG, the hardest thing about an injury, and obviously with your knee injury and coming back, I actually think it, it affects you more mentally than it does physically because you're 
cognizant of like, I'm not going to be back to where I was or how long it's going to be. Well, this is a great opportunity mentally to where you start to think about what you're going to do differently in your game. So maybe I I need to be a little more offensive minded. I need to take a few more risk, you know, with my game until I'm a little more confident with my side to side moving or up and back movement. And one thing that you don't want to think about and do and say is I'm not going to be where I was before. Because now all of a sudden you're already like kind of tilting that the best is behind me. You know, and, and you know I've already achieved where I was and I'm only going to go down because of this. I, I feel like if, if you're going to be strong mentally and maybe it takes time. You know, w- w- when I came back, I had really poor results and maybe I came back too quickly and all of a sudden doubt creeps through your head that, you know, what's happening. But I think that more than anything, it's about being positive and thinking that, you know what, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, I'm going to get back to where I was. And if anything, if I add a little bit to my game by being a little more aggressive or, or doing some things that maybe I wasn't doing before, maybe I can even be a better player before this all happened. I, I do think it's one of the beauties of tennis is that, you know, sometimes when one area of your game diminishes, it can be a good opportunity to improve another area and then have it even out or, or, or if not, get even better. So yeah, so in this case, you know, yeah, obviously it's it's really unfortunate. She blew her knee out and maybe, yeah, maybe the movement never will get back to how it was. But as you said, I mean, I think it's a good time to reflect on, you know, for her to reflect on her game, think of other ways that you can sort of compensate for this lesser movement and I think that could definitely come from being more aggressive it can come from maybe playing a little closer to the baseline and also you know maybe it's a good opportunity to challenge your your mental side a little bit and and figure out tactically ways to win matches a little bit more and in that sense it can be a just a new challenge and, and which is always what competitors are looking for hey KG I'm 59 years young the strength of my game when I was young was my movement now it's probably the worst part of my game. and But it's not something all of a sudden I, I say to myself, geez, I want it back or it's going to come back. I, I mean, you, what Zach just said is trying to play a little closer to the baseline, but I take a little more risks now with my forehand. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to do a little something that, you know, sometimes that you wouldn't have done before, but, you know, you give it a shot. And I do think that tinkering keeps you motivated. So all of a sudden, with your movement not being the same, that's where I say you tinker. Maybe you you tinker with your racket, you tinker with your strings, you tinker with being aggressive on a first ball that maybe before that you wouldn't. So these are all the things that, that, that you can try, but first and foremost, don't give in to the fact that I'm not getting back to the 5-0 level. I'm not getting back to this really good level that I was at before. But you know what, though? Maybe you'll say, I- I'm going to be the best 60-year-old player. You know, that all of a sudden, in four years, who knows? So I, and with all the great equipment, too, I tinker with that as well. I, I just think that being positive outweighs anything that 
that that you think that you're not going to get back. And I think in a lot of ways, having things to work on equals positivity in a lot of ways. If, if, you, if you're not able you know, to set goals and you're not able to maybe think about adjustments to your game and you're just and you're just sort of fixated on this diminishing aspect of your game, then yeah, it's hard to stay positive. But as long as it, you know, in your head there's something to work on, I think I think staying positive becomes a lot easier. And let's let's be real, big big picture wise, you know, it's an awesome blessing just to be able to get out there right now. Yeah, and thank goodness that you're getting back. And obviously, you're not where you want to be at the moment. But I I think that, you know, that's part of the motivation is to keep working to get back to that. And for the next question. I think this is actually a really good uh, topic that we haven't addressed on enough just because I think it's a it's this type of match, type of opponent that, you know, everyone has to go through if you're not maybe if you don't maybe fall under that category yourself. And that's dealing with pushers. Hmm. Something I know pretty well. Yes. about. <laughs> so we got a question from Thad, who's from the Bay Area, and he says, I'm a 4-0 who's pushing 60. I play a couple times a week, singles, and rotate through a group of about a dozen guys. He says, I used to lose every single match until I read Winning Ugly. Now I have a winning record against all but three of the guys I play. One guy, he says he's just too good and he's never going to beat him. But the other two guys that give him trouble, he says they use the same game plan against him. Just dink and run. And he says, this is his question. How do I approach playing opponents who run everything down and get the ball back in the court? They're not necessarily one-dimensional players, but they figured out that if they just keep getting the ball back over the net, I'll eventually miss. And then he does a little self-diagnosis saying, the times I have patience and develop the point I win, but all too often I don't have the mental discipline and he pulls the trigger too soon. So I think it's a classic case of how do you overcome this uh, sort of a dink and run pushing opponent? I mean, it's a, it's a great quandary. It's a great question about a pusher. You know, I'm a bit of... I, you know, back in the day, I definitely was a bit of a pusher, especially when I was a kid. Um, the, the hardest thing about playing a pusher is, and usually if you go to the club level, the, most people will say the most annoying person to play against is a, a pusher or the tricky lefty. And those are always, oh, I, you know, have somebody else play them. I think more than anything, they get in your head. But you underestimate, I think a lot of people, even college players, juniors, pros, a lot of people underestimate the talent of a pusher. That it's, they, they, they think it's like, ah, that this game, it's just nothing. It just makes you lose. Well, there is an art to, to what somebody is doing to be able to run balls down, keep them in play, and, and force you to miss. So when... Actually, the, the toughest player, you know, for me at first to figure out was playing another pusher because then all of a sudden, you can't, you know, your your normal game is to be patient for wait for opportunities and now you start forcing. So when you play pushers, the, the biggest thing that gets to all of us is forcing something that's not there. And sometimes when you're, you don't have any pace that's given to you and you have to create pace, it's easy to overhit. Or it's easy to all of a sudden relax 
and 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 all of a sudden let the ball get a little too close to you and then just whack it where you don't have the good footwork. So I always say play patiently against a pusher and wait for that right ball on the service line to attack. And don't worry about if he or she is good at running and defending. Pick your spot, hit it, and execute. So just keep it simple when playing a pusher. Wait for your opportunity. Don't try to all of a sudden crush a floating ball that's going three-quarters court, and then you'll make mistakes. You know, and a lot of times when you're playing a pusher, you're going to lose the match on unforced errors. And also another strategy is maybe, you know, a lot of people feel like they don't want to get sucked into being a pusher. I don't want to get sucked into their game. But sometimes I say, you know what? Do it for a game. See how the person that you're playing deals with it if you give it back to them. And then maybe the biggest Achilles I see with a lot of players playing pushers is mentally all of a sudden they get a little bit not sure what they're going to do and they decelerate on their shots. They actually don't even go. It's like it's like they're afraid to miss it or afraid to swing at it. Move your feet, execute, pick a big target, but wait for that one that really feels like, okay, I can give it a ride. I think, and I'm definitely guilty of this, you know, playing, you know, having some matches fall apart against people that, that were pushing is, I think one thing that, that can happen and, and something that pushers sort of live off of is you play hard and, and close with them for a, a long time. Let's say it's it's a tight set and, you know, you've worked really hard mentally to be patient, to not overcook it. And then all of a sudden, just something switches a little bit. You lose a big point, you lose a big long game, and then the errors just start coming in bunches. And, and I think that's just what you know, someone that's just trying to play solid feeds off of the most is all of a sudden when all these errors start coming in bunches. So I, I just, the importance of hitting the reset, because, you know, you're going to miss sometimes and that's just going to happen. It's inevitable. But hitting the reset button and not like all of a sudden working super hard for a set and then all of a sudden let, letting everything melt away in a 10, 15 minute period is, is huge. Well, I'm glad that Winning Ugly is working on quite a few but the one thing that I do see and totally agree with you upon is that 45 minutes, it could be for all. And mentally, one missed shot, let's say it's an easy high volley on a put away or easy forehand, triggers something. And next thing you know, you, 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 you just think that, God, it's going to just be too difficult. And next thing you know, you're down 6-4-4-0. I feel like maybe... When you start a set against a pusher, it's seeing what they're going to do. And I also think that late in a set, it's four all, it's five all. Maybe you go back to being, you know what, let's see what he's going to do. Because the last thing the pusher wants to do is pull the trigger. And what you want him to do or her to do is start to play out of their comfort level. The One guy, I I told this story before about uh, Carl Kuchera, when he would play Andre, Andre would hit the ball so big, this guy would run everything down, redirect, and just give Andre nothing but fits using his pace. And finally, when they were playing in Lyon, France, I told him, was like, Andre, just hit the ball down the middle of the court, not much pace, and see what he does. And he's looking at me like, 
that's not how I play. And it's like, well, this guy just feeds off of your pace and then beats you off of your speed because of he, he's able to redirect off of your great pace. So Andre hit, starts hitting the ball down the middle of the court. Next thing you know, this guy tries to start ripping some forehands. Miss, miss, miss. It's 5-0 in 11 minutes. Andre turns to me and he goes, this is bullshit. I can't believe this guy is falling apart. Next thing you know, he starts ripping the ball and it's 5-3. He's like, "And I'm, you're going to go back to doing what you're doing? So I think that making a pusher all of a sudden get out of his comfort level is the ultimate. If you can be good on balls down the middle, make sure you're decisive with your feet, create a little space and pick a big target as well. I think a lot of times that's what winning and losing comes down to is who's the more comfortable player out there. Who's the one getting to play on their terms for more than for the majority of the match. And most of the time that's going to be the one, you know, winning the match. I, I, I think so. You know, always thinking of things you can do to be, you know, making your opponent uncomfortable and, and have it be more on your terms. It's funny as you know, I, I never told myself that I was a pusher, but I always would start matches. And I, even now I just start out making balls and it's kind of like, that's my way of getting into the match. And people would say, ah, oh, he's just a pusher. But I, I do think a lot of people, you know, players, juniors, at all sorts of levels, you do underestimate that, first of all, it's it, it's not easy to be a pusher mentally because all the things you get, and it's not as easy to put them away as you do, as you think. But you you got to be measured, wait for your opportunity. When you get your opportunity, that's when you take it. If you miss it, don't say that, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I, I did it. I'll do it again. And next time I'll make it. Yeah, I think it just comes down to giving someone that's a quote unquote, a pusher more, more credit, really, because it's a great skill to be able to run down a lot of balls and make a lot of balls. It's a that's a great thing to be able to do as a tennis player. And I think if you go into them that match, giving them, you know, a little bit more respect for what they're doing, then I think you know, when you miss that high volley on top of the net, you know, maybe it's not going to feel like such a letdown because to be honest, that's one of the most effective things you can do in tennis is I think Darren not harping, <laughs> harping on that, especially for club level players and junior players is make a lot of balls. So And, and tell yourself, maybe I'm not playing a pusher. I'm playing somebody that doesn't miss a lot. So I've got to be sharp and I've got to be accurate. Okay, moving from that to talking a little bit about clay, uh, maybe your favorite surface, I, I would say. It is now, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, this is an interesting one because, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not positive the right answer for this question. I want to hear your take on it. Michael S. says, My partner and I recently advanced to the semis in a flex league, and the team were set to play informed us that they play on clay. They're the home team, and I guess their club is on clay. He says, I've only been on clay a couple times, um, as has my partner, and he hates it because he, he was hurt on it when they played in the Ooh. in the past. So maybe so a little... A little, a little scar. A little scar tissue, maybe to go with the, the actual injury itself, mental scar. So Michael says, my question is, when you have little experience or access to clay, how can you prepare for playing on clay 
when all you got to prepare on is a hard court. Tricky. Yeah. So so Michael can't get a clay court. I I don't believe that he can get a clay court. Okay. You you got to be. This is a tricky one. You you know because. If I'm playing on clay or I'm playing a match on clay, obviously I want to have a hit on it or I want to have an idea. Sure. I mean, and I just want to like reiterate, I mean, you're always harping that clay is, is just the best surface for developing your game because it does, you know, especially for juniors, but, and also for injury prevention for, for club players. So if you, if there is a clay court that you do have access on, we highly recommend you playing on it. So uh, it, it, is this doubles they're playing in or singles? It, it's doubles, yeah, because okay. this is my partner and I. So, so I think the jump to playing doubles on clay to playing singles on clay isn't as much. So first and foremost, whatever your guy's strategy for playing on hard court, I would start with that. Then if things don't go well, okay, all of a sudden, you know what? Maybe on my second serve, if I do serve, maybe I got to serve and stay back hit a forehand, maybe try to come in. I got to make some adjustments because there are different ways to play. Obviously on clay, it plays a little slower. The ball bounces up. But I I would first and foremost think about playing the way we play successful together and see how it goes. If things don't go well or all of a sudden this team that we're playing, wow, we, they're doing some things differently that you know, maybe because of this surface, that's when all of a sudden you got to make quick adjustments. And I, I feel like whether or not that servant's staying back or doing some different things, you know, you have to be open-minded. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I do think the idea of at least preparing by, you know, let's say if you're like an exclusively want a servant volley type of player, maybe doing some practice points where you do practice some servant stay back too, especially 100%. if percent. You know, because clay can actually really differ depending on what kind of day it is, what the weather's like, what the condition is. Right, like if it's hot it, and dry, it can be fast. It can play fast, but like let's say it's a slow, heavy day, maybe it's a bit colder. Then it's serve and volleying, especially on a second serve, gets gets tough. And so you might want to be prepared to you know for that to maybe be an option to at least fall. You know, not always have to serve and volley. And, and I would say, going back to that is communication, is being able to tell your partner, you know what, let's serve and stay back and have a signal for that and you or mix things up. I think that you need to all of a sudden, this is a type of situation you can easily lose the match before it starts by thinking, geez, I, I don't know what I'm doing on clay. These guys know what they're doing and you psych yourself out. I think you have a strategy the way you're going to play and then make an adjustment. But I think more than anything is be, you, you know, open-minded that it's not as big of a, a change as you think it is. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. At the end of the day, it's still the same sport and the dimensions are still the same. And Absolutely. And you know what? That's one though. But hearing it, it's easy to like go negative and think, that this is ridiculous. We got to play on a clay. I don't play on clay. These guys play on clay. It, you know, they've got a huge advantage. And then next thing you know, you'll be four zero down. Yeah, you could. One thing, just equipment wise, you could look into a pair of of clay court soles for the shoes, which do help the movement a lot. Especially if your partner is is a a little bit you know apprehensive on the injury front, because it's a totally different shoe sole uh, than a hard court shoe. I would also have a racket, probably four to five pounds looser in my bag. Case the court 
is considerably slower, and maybe I get a little more oomph on my serve and maybe my forehand. Yeah, and, and maybe don't, you know, if there are some slower hard courts around, if all you got are hard courts, the one thing you probably don't want to be practicing on is a, a, fast indoors. Is, a, is a fast indoor hard court if you're going to clay. You know, maybe a slower outdoor hard court, if you do have that, could could help the transition a bit more. Okay, this is the uh, the last Q&A question we got for today, and it's a it's a Fed fan related question. First of all, yeah, we got the got the news. Was it yesterday? Yeah, he just pulled that out of the Aussie Open. Open First which, time, well, he's played twenty one straight. So bummer, and hopefully, you know, we'll see him. You know, he said he's going to make a new schedule, and we'll see him maybe late February, March. So actually, twenty one straight. What does that go back? So he went went back to ninety nine. Ninety nine. So this question is actually related to a match not long before that. And it comes from Simon from Berlin. Simon from Berlin, okay. And who I take it is a is a solid Fed fan himself. He wants you to go back to a match at Basel in 1998 when Andre first played a 17-year-old Roger Federer in his hometown event. And Andre did win that match pretty comfortably. You know, as you might expect, Andre was top 10 in the world. But he's curious what you thought of Fed's abilities after that match, specifically, and what you wrote in your coach's notebook, scouting-wise, for Fed, what you might have seen. Uh, Great question, Um, and I remember it really well. We got to um, Basel, you know, a few days early, and Andre wanted to play, I believe, Tuesday. You know, he didn't feel right in practice. And they said that no problem. Draw was, you know, not made till Sunday. But only in case that, that if they if you play Roger Federer, you're going to play Monday night because they'd already announced this young wild card who had won Junior Wimbledon is, you know, going to play Monday night. Okay, interesting. Draw comes out Sunday night. Andre's playing Roger Federer. He's playing Monday night. So Andre's pretty annoyed that all of a sudden asked for Tuesday start, doesn't get the Tuesday start, got to play this kid. Um, And I had only seen him play. It wasn't like then you could go to YouTube and really see, you know, how easy it is to see stuff. But I had just seen him play a little bit at Junior Wimbledon that year. So the next day I did go watch him practice. Uh, You know, and I wasn't... I mean, to be honest, it, you know, wasn't that worried, but Andre had lost at the start of that year to Leighton Hewitt. And when he was like 16 and won the tournament at, at Adelaide. So I knew that like, okay, if this guy's like the best junior in the world, I mean, he's going to be good. But at that point, the two things that he wasn't doing that a couple of years later, he was already, he wasn't serving that big. And backhand wasn't that solid yet. You know, he would miss hit a lot. He'd hit a few, but it just, you, you know, the pace could bother. So Andre goes on to to win the match, fairly comfortable. Was like, whew, maybe three and three is my guess. I think I saw three and two. Okay, yeah. three and two. But it was probably like, it wasn't like a 40, it was like a 90 minute match. And I remember instantly... After the match, like four, you know, Swiss, you know, 
journalists come over, they want to have a, a word with me, uh, with me, and everybody was asking me, of these four, can he be the next Pete Sampras? Can he win like, you know, a dozen majors? And I was like, geez, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, he looks pretty good, you know? I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to say sometimes when you see somebody. I saw Andre when he was really young. I thought he would be great. You know, I played Pete when he was uh, either 15 or 16. And I, I thought he would be good. Didn't realize he'd be that great. I played Chang when he was 14. I actually thought he was going to win a lot more than he did. So it is hard. But after, you know, I spoke to the press, I instantly wanted to to speak to Andre. I probably should have spoke to Andre first and to get his impressions. And he was like, that kid is going to be really good. He has a great court awareness sense, his ability to transition, to play different variety. I I felt like he could put me under pressure. Um, Andre then played him two years later at the U.S. Open. Uh, maybe the round of 16, still handled it. Then, then maybe played him again, maybe one more time when I, I, I was coaching him. Uh, and you could already see, might have played him in Key Biscayne. And you could already see the leap in 2001 from where he was in 98. I, and I was thinking the two massive improvements were his backhand and his serve. By then... I had a really good thought that he was going to be top three in the world. I, you know, I couldn't tell you then, you know, where he was going. Fast forward two more years, 2003, I'm coaching Roddick. And they're playing in the second tournament that I'm coaching Roddick in the semis of Wimbledon. And I had a feeling that, you know what, these guys are going to play a lot in some big matches. And but by 2004, when he was playing in Australia, it was like, uh-oh, wow. I can't believe how much he's improved in six years and where he's gone. But if you asked me he was going to win 20 Grand Slams, I probably still would have said no. But I, I, I thought he followed a great progress from where I saw him. And I wish I would have spoken to Andre first before <laughs> answering all the press questions. But Andre was very impressed with his level, was still annoyed, though, why they couldn't play that match on Tuesday, though, he said. That's funny. Um, yeah, I, I, well, I guess it's kind of rings true that, you know, that the backhand and the serve were these areas that Fed made the big leap at, you know, from maybe 17 to 20. And really, the backhand is something that he's continued to improve throughout his entire career, and his serve probably as well. His serve then was much more of a kick serve. You know, and maybe he was hitting his serve in that match at Basel. 111, 112. You, you know, yeah, so he probably it, hadn't properly filled out quite yet all the way. It, it was kind of like Pete. And I beat him in 88 and 89. Sampras. And I remember watching him in 1990 at the start of the year. And I'm watching him at Philly. And I, and I, and I turned over and I hear the sound. And I was like, guy used to be serving 113. Toss. Next thing you know, he's serving 128, 129. I was like, what? Then I saw him like, you know, a couple weeks before the open. And I was like, wow, what happened to this guy? And, and sometimes leaps can happen unbelievably quick. I would say Pete's happen like, like really quick. 
And Fed made this great steady progress that he's continued. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, he, it's been some, some decent progress. And, I, would and, say. <laughs> and I, I think the most amazing was even in 2017, after that injury, that all of a sudden he started hitting his backhand better than he'd ever hit it before. People were like, why didn't you do that before? Probably never had that much time to work with. I do think it's it's interesting, like, you know, even when someone, you start to, you know, realize, you know, when when a young pro is has an amazing amount of talent, and like you said, how you thought, okay, by, by 2001, 2002, you had a good idea that he was going to be top three in the world. But it's still so difficult, even at that point, to project to project if someone's going to be some multi multi major winner, you know, all time great or not, because you sort of have to see how they react and how they handle the occasion in a number of big matches. I, there's there's because because there have been so many other players with exceptional exceptional talent that just don't quite mentally have that same sort of you know. I, I don't know. I don't even know. It's a hard, tangible thing to, to describe for me. But. Expectation. And people and, you know, people are talking about you. I saw Rafa play when he was 15, and I was like, man, he's going to be great. You know, I had the same thought when I saw Andre when he was 15. But you don't know how great, and then how they're going to be able to handle it and manage it, and all these expectations that people think you're going to win X amount and be number one, all these things. Um Probably somebody that, another one that I saw when she was like 13, 14, I was like, oh my goodness, she seems so advanced in her game, was Steffi Graf. But sometimes there are players that you see that are that level, but they just can't handle all of everything that goes with it. And I do like the way Fed made a little slower instead of just going, boom, he was right there. Yeah, probably gave him a bit more time to sort of be, uh, you know, mentally prepared you know, to sort of meet those expectations. Yeah, I can't believe Simon. I wonder if Simon was at that match. It, you know, I, I still definitely remember that match, you know, in that indoor. They still play at the same indoor in Basel where, you know, Rogers had so much success. And, and yeah, doesn't he? He has the court named after him yeah, now, of course he? he does. He's won it 10 times. So yeah, that's pretty course. funny. <laughs> and, and just, you know, I, I can honestly look back at that match and remember him so well and, and scouting him in practice the day before, you know, because Andre n- never took anybody for granted. And, you know, sitting there watching, you know, I you, sometimes you wish, like, like I said, I wish I wouldn't have told that I think he's going to be good. I don't know how good he's going to be. But if I would have talked to Andre first, like Andre said, this guy's going to be number one in the world and win majors. So he told me that. I was like, really? Because I was surprised that he said that. I, hey, uh, if anyone's going to be a really good judge of exceptional talent, yeah, I'd say Andre absolutely. would be a good person to do that. <laughs> okay, that that wraps it up for the questions. Really appreciate it. You know, it's been it's been fun getting the podcast going this year, and uh, hope hope for hope for many more in twenty twenty one. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Everybody, be safe for the new year, and hopefully things are going to turn the corner. We're going to get a lot better in 2021. I just like the sound of 2021. 2020, you're toast. <laughs> Actually, wait, we have time for a guest on the podcast. I know you mentioned Julie, uh, my sister's, you know, working on her game. We got Zoe, my youngest sister. She's 
back home from Washington. Back home from... Been listening to us. Yeah. And wants to either, like, tell us what we should be doing or has a question. What up, Zoe? She's extremely funny and she wants to converse with you, so let's get her on. Hello. <laughs> uh, that's a hard act to follow by being called hilarious. That's a lot of pressure. Uh, sports. I don't really know anything about him. I have. You got to know something about tennis. You want to come on the podcast today? It's it's alarming how much ESPN I have managed to just drown out. <laughs> <laughs> like you think I would absorb something, but uh, no. I don't talk about sports. So come on, you don't got a question today for tennis. My question for you is when you were playing, you must have like, you went so many places, they must have lost your baggage. Uh, Believe it or not, I had a pretty good career of not losing my bag. Except for one time, 1987. I was going from Itaparica, Brazil to New York uh, and on the first leg these th- the kids said can we help you w- with our bags you know out to the tarmac and I was like alright yeah I thought it was a little weird give them a buck you know get to um, Rio so we're, we're going to get our bags and then I'm going on a different airlines to New York don't get the bags all three bags gone now I'm go- about to go from Rio to New York, where it's like, it was like 100 degrees, and I'm going to go to New York, it's freezing. I'm going to meet mom there, I'm call her on a, a phone, like, bring me some clothes. So what did she find you? Did you have to, like, hustle? Did you, like, have to get other people to uh, give you their clothes? Yeah, I had to get, you know, stuff. So the craziest thing is, three years later, three years later, so two bags gone obviously all three bags are gone but i get a call from somebody because back then you know you put your member says you know i happen to have one of your bags um do you want it i was like you're kidding and i was like sure so the guy sends the bag and you won't believe this to one of the three bags that that i got it paprika was a million degrees so this bag was probably dumb because I was thinking I'm going to New York. As soon as I get there, I'm going to wash it. It was all the sweaty, all my worst, you know, stuff that needed to be washed. So this is the bag that the guy found, sent to me. And now it was all like, all the clothes were completely gross, smelly. And I was like, couldn't you find like the good bag of stuff? So I, the one bag I got... I had to end up throwing away. So basically, I lost those two other bags and I got the gross bag. But I've been, you know, I've lost bags a lot all over the place, but always gotten them back. So that was the only time that I ever lost bag that didn't get it back. That is hilarious. So the clothing was like literally marinating in your filth for three oh, years. It, it was molded. It was molded. Was like, it was shot. Have these precious items back. And if he would have opened it, 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 the bag, he probably would have had a heart attack. It stunk. Oh, my God. Were there any, like, hidden gems in there? Uh, you know what I did? I just straight to the garbage. You're so sentimental. <laughs> straight to the garbage. It's a Parica. It's a Parica, Brazil. To, I had to go to, like, 
some I don't stop somewhere to go to Rio, transfer, then go to New York, and it went from in 24 hours. It was like 105 in where I was at in Brazil. To believe it or not, this was like maybe in early December. It was like five degrees, so it was a hundred degree temperature change in 24 hours. Well, thank you for coming <laughs> in, Joey, and spending a little time with us. Thank you. Sorry, I was unprepared. <laughs> All right.